Welcome back to the Decolonizing Healthcare Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nurse D. I am doing something a little bit different for our show today, and I will be reading an excerpt from the book Inflamed, Deep Medicine and the Anatomy of Injustice by Rupa Maria and Raj Patel. This book is profoundly important and educational. I highly recommend it for all people, especially anyone working in the healthcare field, community health, hospital setting, clinics, outpatient setting. Really, really important for us to be diving into the nuances and the stories uh, and the history that we really did not learn in school and the education that we did not get in medical and nursing training. Um, So I really felt it was important to do this reading and share a little bit about um, the intention of this podcast. And I feel that the excerpt really kind of says it all. And um, so we'll go ahead and I'll do the reading and um, I would love your guys' feedback. Please comment, like the show, share. And if you know anyone who you feel is aligned with this movement and doing great work in their community and um, would be a great guest on the show, please do reach out. That would be wonderful. Looking to continue bringing on different voices, amplifying their stories and um, really creating momentum behind this movement. So enjoy the excerpt. And again, this is a uh, an excerpt from the book Inflamed, Deep Medicine and the Anatomy of Injustice by Dr. Rupa Maria and Raj Patel. Enjoy. This excerpt will come from page 64 in the immune system chapter. And the title of this section is called History is Written in the Body. Puerto Rico is the Western Hemisphere's oldest continual colony, known as Boriquen to its indigenous people. Columbus arrived on the island during his second voyage in 1493. The Spanish subjugated and enslaved the island's inhabitants to work colonial plantations and gold mines. Violence and disease took a drastic toll on the native population. The story written in the official census report goes like this. In 1778, there were 2,300 indigenous inhabitants on the island, and by 1802, the original people of Boriquen were extinct. Modern-day descendants were told they were largely of Spanish ancestry. But the whispers of grandmothers on the island tell a different story, and a study of mitochondrial DNA confirms their claim. A survey of people across Puerto Rico found that majority have indigenous DNA. The next most common ancestry is African, and coming in last, Caucasian. The Boricua healer, ceremonialist, and two-spirit activist Rajini Gonzalez reclaims the identity Taino a moniker used by colonizers to refer to the indigenous people of the region. They reflect on the history of their ancestors and how that manifests in Puerto Ricans today. Quote, a lot of people denied their indigeneity on the island because of colonialism. So people pushed their indigenous heritage away as racism made social hierarchies. 
Indigenous identity went underground, but it was always there. In my family, we have people with European features like blue eyes, people with Indigenous features and long straight black hair, and family with African features with dark skin. End quote. Those structures of racism persist today, as Puerto Ricans live like immunes in their own homelands. Having prevailed in the 1898 Spanish-American War, the United States annexed control of Guam, Puerto Rico, and the Philippines, establishing a second wave of colonial rule. The new conqueror's legal system tried to solve the ensuing riddle. What do you call lands that you've conquered and would very much like to keep as a part of your country without calling them colonies or granting the humans living there anything like citizenship? In 1901, insular cases, the Supreme Court ruled that these lands were, quote, foreign to the United States in the domestic sense, end quote. That is, they were outside the United States because they had not been among those states that had united to form the country. But nonetheless, they were encompassed as uh, by U.S. sovereignty. Residents were U.S. nationalists, but not U.S. citizens. Not quite self and not quite other. Today, Puerto Rico has yet to recover from the devastations of U.S. rule. Congress wields tight fiscal control over the island's debt repayment regimes through a fiscal, uh, financial oversight and management board. While Puerto Rico's money matters to its colonists, the bodies of the island's inhabitants don't. In a 2016 study of Medicare users comparing Hispanics on the mainland to Hispanics in Puerto Rico, those on the island received significantly worse level of care when evaluated across 17 different performance goals, such as blood pressure control and access to appropriate medications. Good medicine is hard to come by, as is good food. When Gonzalez travels home to the island, they have a hard time finding healthy things to eat. They are sensitive to chemicals in the industrial food offerings, and Puerto Rico's market markets are flooded with food that they can neither eat nor afford. Most of what's available there is processed food and junk food. When you find cauliflower that costs you $3 in Oakland, it costs you $8 on the island, thanks to the Jones Act. Before colonialism, we used to be healthy people with good diets of fish and yuca. Now I have a hard time eating in my own ancestral territory. In 2017, Hurricane Maria tore through the island. The official death toll was 64. A Harvard study estimated a mortality of 4,645. But to the U.S. government, Puerto Rican death appeared to matter as little as Puerto Rican life. Gonzalez felt that the hurricane woke people up from their slumber. When Hurricane Maria came, it shook up the island and it shook everyone awake. How the U.S. failed to help us showed how alone we really are. People went months without stable access to power, food, and water. It forced my people to step up and show up for themselves. People, especially the younger people, started organizing and growing their own gardens all over the place to feed themselves and the community. They are getting in touch with their Taino roots, the language, the rituals, they are remembering the old names for the plants. It's an awakening.
Across the island, agroecological projects are cropping up. Before the hurricane, Puerto Rico imported about 80% of its food. Quote, after the hurricane, says Silvia de, Mar de Marco, who works on the land in Huerto Semilla, an agroecological garden in the heart of San Juan. Quote, even people who didn't care about food started to care. It really opened people's eyes that we have to depend on our soil, not shipping containers. Restoring the island's agriculture will mean healing from structures and policies that dismantled indigenous ways of tending to land and growing food. And that will involve healing from the trauma that colonialism brought and that persists today with U.S. domination. Gonzalez relates, quote, When the colonizers came, they found good, loving, healthy people. We lived in balance with our surroundings and ate well. What does it do to watch your loved ones murdered, raped, and enslaved? The impact of that trauma lasts through the generations. End quote. Wow. I did not expect to be so triggered by that chapter. I've read it before. I, I think reading it out loud is a different process. And um, I actually had to get up. I had to walk away. I had to cry. And I was angry. And I felt the anger moving through my body. I felt my shoulders tense up. I felt my heart begin to start racing. And I felt this heat over my chest. And I... In the past, <laughs> I would have just shut it down. And this time, I now I don't do that anymore. And so I really allowed myself the space to feel what was coming up in that excerpt reading. And for those of you who don't know me, my mother is from Puerto Rico. And she... And my father came to the States seeking opportunity for their future, for their children. And so I mostly, mostly grew up in California. However, um, we would go home to, to the island every year and in fact lived there for a while, a short while during the time of my parents' separation when I was a toddler. So I'm very connected to that side of my lineage. Um, my sister currently lives there and all of my maternal side of the family is still on the island. And it's so interesting because I'm always, I continue to be so amazed at like how much emotion all of this continues to evoke in me when, whether it's hearing, learning about eugenics projects in the island to um, the Rockefellers and their, you know, and their impact on <laughs> Puerto Ricans and just so many things that I continue to learn as I have uh, embarked on this journey over the last couple of years of decolonizing and, and questioning and, and also witnessing the health impacts in my own family uh, over the years. And, and I just, I'm always so, I don't know why, but I'm always just so surprised at like how impacted I still am. And, and it really does, does just speak to these imprints and this generational, um, this, this very real and felt and experienced generational trauma. 
and um and the way that we deal with this and and that they're you know growing up you know there weren't spaces to allow emotion to really move through all the time when your parents are working and you're you know you have a single mother who's raising three children and and is like there is this is why it takes a village you know and so it's really um yeah it's really always just uh, just wanted to share that it's it just always never ceases to amaze me at how deep how deep this stuff goes literally to the cellular level as we know as as we do this work and um science has has shown and so you know i think that brings us to the why my why around this podcast and and what and and thank you dr rupa and raj patel for supporting me and laying the foundation for this podcast because i feel you know that I feel that the book really, really does a great job in so many ways doing that work. So this journey for me really started when I came to the realization that I did not want to be taking prescription medications for the rest of my life. And after years of being on SSRIs for depression, benzos for anxiety, and amphetamines for ADHD, all of which were diagnosed by doctors, I decided that I didn't want to continue with those and started to notice these toxic patterns in my life, drinking a lot, really doing whatever was needed to kind of numb myself from feeling the imbalances and the difficult, heavy energies that I was exposed to on the daily basis as a ICU nurse, pediatric ICU, just to be clear. And um, so that was really what shook me into questioning what doctors were really telling people. And Again, this is my personal journey. This is not um, a, a, this is not to speak of doctors as a whole. I have many friends and colleagues that are physicians and therapists that I respect greatly, that I love greatly, and that are very aligned in everything that I'm saying and understand themselves um, that there needs to be a huge shift in the way that we practice medicine and the way that we approach. Um, community health in general. And um, the past three years has really illuminated that for many of us. And so back to my personal journey, I decided to wean myself off of all of these medications against physician advice and recommendation. And I was fortunate to have um, some dear friends that were nurse practitioners and supporting me in creating this titration schedule. And so just to a disclaimer, this is not something I recommend or this is not medical advice to anyone. And anyone who is curious or interested on coming off of any sort of 
medications that I described should absolutely consult with their physician and this should definitely be done under the care um, of a healthcare provider, 100%. So I just wanted to create that disclaimer. So as I started to become clear in my mind, in my body, in my heart from being on these medications for many years, I started to realize I didn't have any tools for myself. So I started seeking knowledge and wisdom from other modalities of healing from around the world, like Ayurveda. I started diving back into my yoga practice. I started learning about food as medicine. And I just couldn't understand why this was not something that was integrated into our allopathic training as healthcare providers. It was kind of mind-boggling to me. It was like, why wouldn't we want to support people in learning about their own food and empowering people to understand that they can learn about these plants as medicine to support them and that maybe this could be a first option before jumping to a prescription or to some sort of invasive surgery. Why? Why wasn't this something that we even knew about? It just didn't make sense to me. And so that was really the start of my, I like to say my, the metamorphosis that happened. And I started to question really everything about our education system. I started to hold these retreats for nurses that were bringing in teachers of this, these wisdom traditions and sharing that and wanting to make that accessible for nurses and doctors and therapists to really empower them. And a couple years later, I formed a nonprofit, Cultivating Self, which is sponsoring the show today. And our mission is to really support the growth and mental health, spiritual health, physical health of health and healing practitioners themselves to learn these ways so that they may bring it to their communities. Okay, so back to my story. So so the why, the why continues as we fast forward a couple years and now it's 2020, COVID lockdowns, I'm a frontline nurse in the PICU and it's intense. There's a lot going on, a lot of confusion, a lot of distrust between us as the providers, healthcare providers, and the hospital administrators, and the shady things going on around PPE and confusing policies. And it's just pretty chaotic. And we're not receiving support from the surrounding communities. Everyone is. Everyone is uh, claiming to be supporting the healthcare heroes, but is anything really changing? No, not for our experience. Fast forward another year, starting to see kids come into my ICU with suicide attempts, many successful. We're talking like record numbers. There was a, a couple week period where I think we had almost a suicide attempt every day. And I was just like, what the fuck is going on? How are we not seeing the impact on these responses, the, the shutdowns from schools, the, the way that we weren't allowed to meet even at a park 
to see our families. And this, it was really eye-opening for me. Uh, people just obeyed. And people obeyed, and I saw my colleagues, who I had lots of respect for previously. I just saw them fold. I saw them not question. I watched and I asked them, what do you really think about this? And a lot of them were concerned, but nobody had the courage to step forward and to say, you know what? This is wrong. I watched my patients' families be treated differently because they had skepticisms about the COVID vaccine because they were, and, and mind you, this is these are communities of color. I watched them literally be treated differently, be, be um, denied services by social workers because they were skeptical. Nobody was addressing the underlying root of that skepticism. Nobody was even questioning. And I remember even bringing that to the attention of many people as they, as the whispers around the break room and the unit around, oh, this, this mother's difficult because, and she didn't get vaccinated. And oh my gosh. And I was just so disgusted with my colleagues. And I, I was like, wow, what is, and so to watch that, um, watch that conformity and watch that come from the mouths of people who I loved and who are good people. That's what really opened my eyes to the greater system at play and the harm, the real harm that was being done, not just to patients and their families, but to us and the moral injury that was accumulating. And what was that doing to our health? So this podcast is is really about illuminating these shadows, looking at it, recognizing it, learning from the past, understanding why we are where we are today, and dreaming, envisioning, and reimagining a health care system that actually offers care, compassion, non-judgment that is not polarizing that is not where medical treatments are not moralized how can we come together around wanting each other to thrive as a culture all of us and i believe that the answers lie deep within the wisdom of these ancient traditions of our ancestors of those who are still around sharing these stories. There's so much wisdom in the collective and how can we source that? So that's what I'm curious about in this podcast, in the sharing. And I appreciate all of you being around for the journey because we all need to wake up to this. And when I speak about harm and a lot of the unconscious harm, and as one of my teachers likes to say, the unconscious colluding with these colonial paradigms, which we all have participated in and we continue to. Let's bring these shadows to light so that we can do better, so that we can do better for each other, for the planet, and for our future generations. Because who is thinking about them? We must start thinking about future generations 
and what we can do now that's going to set them up for the best, set them up to thrive, set them up to be happy so that they don't have to repeat these cycles. I look forward to continuing to share other readings, other books, podcasts, other resources that have been supportive on my journey, teachers, with all of you. And I ask you to come with an open heart, with curiosity, and with an understanding that none of us as individuals know the answer or have the answer. But if we can sit down and actually hear each other, then maybe we have a chance. Thank you again to each of you for listening, for holding space for this reading, this share and deep vulnerable reflection. I am super grateful and um, really want to name my privilege in the space of being able to even speak on these issues and to share. And I am really excited for what is to come. This is a heart-centered project and I hope that you all can feel my heart deeply connecting to each one of yours.